Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply demonstrate the military utility of the Starlink system. Essentially, we had a, a mesh network of radios and soft on the ground. Uh, that network then connected to an AC-130 overhead that was connected to the Starlink uh, satellites. Hey, everybody, and welcome back to the Kodiak Shack podcast. Uh, today, we have Adam Chitwood, uh, and he worked at the Agile Battle Lab. You're going to learn all about that in a little bit, uh, but first, we're going to take care of some admin. Today, we have Bender here as well. Bender and I have had some uh, scheduling issues, so he hasn't been able to make all of them, but uh, thank you, everybody, for donations and uh, for the support of the podcast. Please uh, send us uh, five-star ratings on wherever you listen to podcasts. And then also uh, send us any topics you want to listen to or uh, hear about because we're always listening uh, and we want to know what good content you're looking to have. Uh, so Adam Chitwood uh, is just about to finish his 20-year uh, career in the Air Force. And uh, he's done a few things. We talked about the Agile Battle Lab. He flew the B-1. Initially, he worked in the Indo-Pacific area, which I think I know where that is. And then uh, he also did the uh, Foreign Policy advisor fellowship. And I believe if uh, LinkedIn is correct, he got his uh, MBA at uh, Stanford. So uh, Adam, thank you for being here. Correct me if I'm wrong with all that. And uh, tell us about yourself. It's not a trap. Uh, but the only that uh, needs some correction is uh, I was a fake to begin with, P6 fake. Uh, and my MBA is from Florida. I just have mm. a certificate from Stanford. Yep. That's my fault. That's uh, I didn't read the fine print. Um, is that like a cheaper option? Is that what I should close be enough. going for? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> I get the diploma, the Stanford diploma. Uh, time. So the UF MBA was awesome. It was the number one online MBA in the nation at the time. Uh, and you know, the Air Force is let people just go go to school uh, when they desire. So that's what I that's what I went after. But uh, did uh, Stanford Ignite? Oh, cool. Last about four, 15, 14, 15 months ago. Yeah, we yeah, heard good awesome. things. Yeah, we I heard. Um, Cindy brothers. Cindy. Yeah. She, uh, she went there. She also said awesome stuff, um, about it. So the, uh, so you did the Stanford tonight, which sounds cool. And then the MBAs are back, get ready. Well, I guess masters in general, but specifically the MBA, you know, the, uh, masters, but so that's, uh, pluses and minuses. That's right. Check you got to the, uh, well, actually before <laughs> well, we get into yeah, all the you other got a stuff, real one, at least. Yeah, Mine's exactly. Kind of a, well, and this is, I, uh, I went looking for a real one. I did not want to check the box. And it has paid 
uh, I would say dividends for me. Uh, I, I definitely had options to do stuff, whether it was stay in or get out. Um, I'm not a check the box kind of guy, uh, but I know that the math, many of the masses are, and that's just the function of the Air Force. These days. One of the things that we've, because a lot of people have strong opinions one way or another about the masters being unmasked. And, and we've talked about this on previous uh, bro chats, but the, the overarching thing is it's not, you have to have a master's. It's that you can see whether someone has a master's or not. Would you say in your experience in the military, when that was a requirement, because I think it was 2014, they got rid of the, they, they remasked the masters, if you will. What would you say prior to that to after that? Uh, was, was it a requirement or was it a, okay. So that was the reality. We here at the Kodiak Shack podcast would like to welcome our new sponsor, Adamus Cyber. Working with the military means there are some minimum cybersecurity requirements that are in every contract. Complying with these requirements can be painfully slow and really take your company's focus off your military customers and end users. Thankfully, the team at Adamus has simplified the process exclusively for small businesses working with the military. It should be expected that Security requirements are going to be a part of working with the military, but they don't have to be difficult. Learn why prior guests on the podcast like Arun from Ops Lab or Brian from Rescon use Atomist to comply with the NIST 800-171, DFARS 7012, and CMMC cybersecurity requirements in their contracts. Check out their website at www adamuscyber.com and tell them you heard about them from the Kodiak Shack podcast. Their website will be in the show notes. We appreciate all the companies that want to work with the military and we understand working with the government isn't always the easiest thing, uh, but we appreciate companies like Adamus that make it just a little bit easier. My commander said, I cannot promote you if you don't have a master's, period. And I think that's what everybody's afraid. Yeah, well, good on you. Well, I, even poor retention, people will still get promoted, I think. I mean, there's just, you can't not promote people these days. There's no one staying in. Um, but they'll they'll use those box checkers for something else. Um, they'll use it for command or school or who gets to be some general's exec that can then get sponsored or whatever else. So uh, it's, it's the function of the Air Force these days. And I... I think that's that's what people are afraid of. And I think you're spot on where in 2010 and 11 and 12, promotions were being decided whether someone had a master's or not. But now there's no, I mean, they're talking to people who are tw uh, 2012 year groups about how they're critically manned and that if you just stay in, you're probably going to take command of a squadron. And it's kind of laughable that now we've got a, a master's. Last guy out. Uh, Turn the lights off, yeah. right? Yeah. <laughs> Oh man. So either not to, not to devolve into that very much. Uh, but so first we'll talk about the, uh, B1. So how did you like flying the B1? I loved it. Um, it going from being a fake to that took some adjusting. Uh, but after my first deployment, um, upgrading quickly after that, uh, I just got tired of thinking that we could do better. Uh, so I threw myself into it. And uh, I, I loved it. I loved it after that. Um, it's an absolutely deadly aircraft. Uh, can do so much uh, in the right environment. Uh, great community. 
in terms of everyone contributing to the success of the mission. Um, I culminated my B1 career uh, over Iraq, Syria, and Afghanistan, 2015, 2016, and uh, it, it was it was awesome. Um, we did stuff that that no one else could. We routinely were the fastest to respond, uh, called on when when others weren't. Um, and we just did a lot more because of what we had built in the community, because the capabilities of the aircraft, and because of the nature of the war. Um, an absolutely tremendous platform. Um, over there, flew with General Brown, New Year's Day of 2016, rain and hate over Ramadi, 10 danger close, 10 danger close nine lines, um, you know, executed. Like that was just a normal day uh, back then. Um, and it was, it was in the right place at the right time. So love to be one and it can do a lot more in the Indo-Pacific as well. So, yeah. Well, and that's, so one thing I want you to explain for me, but also the audience. So, what was the B-1 originally built for? Like the mission set that they were like, this is what the B-1's going to do. And then what do you envision the B-1 doing in years to come and in, in, in combat that we expect? Uh, so originally designed to you know, penetrate the Soviet Union, uh, low altitude, high speed, and then pop up, uh, drop in either nuclear gravity bombs or, uh, or cruise missiles type stuff. Um, and then trying to make it somewhere where you can move, you know, the... The nuclear winter. Um, they were on alert for a long time. They did not fly in Desert Storm, uh, but they came off alert soon thereafter. Uh, first combat, I think, was Operation Desert Fox in 98. Uh, they also, I think, flew in Allied Force, if I get the right Balkans conflict right. Um, did, some, did some great stuff, uh, evaded a, a fair share of SA-6s in that um, while dropping bombs. Uh, it flew combat, you know, in Afghanistan after 9-11, uh, first out of the war, 2003 over Iraq. Uh, I joined the community in 2008. First deployment was in 2010. Around the 2003-ish timeline is where they went from dropping dumb bombs to, uh, to JDAM. Um, so that was, that was definitely a technological uh, advance in the community. Um, and then I uh, got the sniper targeting pod 2009-ish. Uh, I deployed with it in 2010 over Afghanistan. Uh, did some great work there. Uh, first bomb run, supporting Marines in Northwest Afghanistan. And then uh, the targeting pod was integrated sometime 2012-ish. I think I'm, I'm really at the, at the limits of my historical knowledge here. Uh, and we we're also kind of the threshold platform for the JASM, keeping the JASM program alive and, and making it work. Uh, through my through my efforts into that, as well as hard target defeat, using which essentially is using JDAM to dig down deep into wherever you're hiding. Um, used a lot of that in over Iraq and Syria to, to great effect. Um, that's why we dropped some of the danger close because we really knew what we were doing with those bombs. Um, and Going, looking forward to the Indo-Pacific. Uh, it can operate from a lot of places, not just Guam. Um, JASM, El Razm, uh, JDAM, uh, hunting ships uh, can do a lot. Uh, it is facing uh, you know, elimination from the fleet at some point in time in the future. Um, it, when it will disappear, it depends on who you ask. Um, but I think for the near future, it 
for the near future, it is the backbone of this. It is a backbone of this of the strategic bomber fleet, and it will continue to uh, to be so until, until someone knocks off his throne, or it just well, can't fly anymore. Yeah, and I think it's really hard. I mean, as we're seeing with the F-15C, the A-10, like the F-16, there's so many planes that they keep saying they want to get rid of, uh, but then they then they never go away. So I, I have a feeling whatever, whatever ever the date is, just like, you know, add a handful of years beyond that, it's probably going to keep flying, you know. Yes, yes. It's a pretty sick jet. Have you, Vader, you ever been up close to one, like sitting on the ground uh, like a static? Uh, I don't think so, no. Yeah, I mean, obviously it's massive compared to a Viper. So that's awesome. So, But then I thought, like the first time I saw it, I was like, oh, you know, it's a sick, huge airplane. It'll, you know, you're like climbing up at the cockpit. It's going to be like nice and roomy. They're going to have <laughs> like a nice bathroom. That thing is freaking, it's probably smaller per individual than the Viper is. Like, honestly, it's crazy. I can't believe you stuff four dudes into that jet. And then the rest of it is just this massive weapons rack, which is awesome. So the like, look up gas and fuel the rotor. And gas and fuel fuel and bombs sorry about that yeah <laughs> yeah it's crazy i don't know it's like 30 plus jdam right that you can carry uh, 24 in the internal 2000 pound class weapons so 24 gb31s or jasm um it'd be nice if we could hang some external racks on that i don't know where the the money people uh lie on that scale um and a whole lot of gas i love uh, going low in the nellis ranges and then at uh you know, maneuvering for a, a, a blue Viper and then outrunning you because I can go down low and fast and I've got the gas to do so. Um, and then turn pitch right back in uh, to kill the target, which I've done before. Um, it's fun, but yeah, it's big. The horizontal stabilizer is about as big as your Viper wing. So, yeah. yeah. <laughs> the uh, Well, I remember uh, when they told me that the, I believe it's uh, 220s, Pratt & Whitney 220s, there's four of them. In, uh, so they have four F-16 motors or F-15C motors uh, in there, and it is noticeable when one takes off. Uh, the, the I think probably surprisingly, the closest I've been to one was when uh, a B-1 was getting gas from a 135, and I was rejoining on the 135. And, uh, and what it looked like, it looked like the 135 was going to like, crumple up like a can that got like all the air like taken out of it. And then it was just going to like ding, 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 you know, across the top of the B1. And then it was like, all right, send in another one. Uh, but yeah, it's, it's, I mean, it's a large plane and it, I mean, it's sleek. It's meant to move. Obviously it's going to like what, I don't know, maybe I'm saying secrets, but like Mach 1.2 on the deck, which is, uh, which is real uh, fast. A little, a little higher than that. Uh, it can't go that fast as low, but it can, it can go as fast as you need to go. Yeah. Well, and that's, you know, somebody told me like, uh, you know, Hey, you, you rejoin on one of those and they can, they can walk away from you and you're like, Oh, but you're in a fighter. And it's like, well, they have four of your motors. So, you know, it's, yeah. it's just science. Um, well, that's good. Yeah. There's, uh, there's, I, I think a lot of what we talk about in the military is, is it's not the, the any individual plane, whether it's a Raptor or C model of 35 or a B one, but it's, it's all of them. It's when they all show up, like that is that is a bad day for anybody on the opposite side of the line, uh, but that's what you want. Like you want people to be like, "Holy smokes, this is this is not good for us," you know. Yeah, uh, you know the army uses the term combined arms, and that's what that's where the air force excels is when you bring them all together. Uh, you know, I was talking about Iraq and Syria. We are an amazing cast platform for a 
traditional war in an urban environment. Um, it doesn't mean we're the only or best cast platform out there, um, nor does it mean I can do everything that an eagle or a raptor or whatever else can do. Um, but you're right. When you bring the whole family together, uh, if when employed correctly, we're going to bring a, a world to hurt. Yeah. The uh, are there? Is it automatic when the wings will move, or how does that work? All manual. Nice. Got to got to earn that pay. <laughs> the uh, so now so you said you were at uh, Moody and uh, that was your fate tour, and then you went to Columbus, or how did it work? Uh, so student pilot. Pardon, student pilot training at Moody and then Columbus, then faith back to Moody. Moody got shut down, had to finish my faith tour at Columbus. So I'd seen a lot of the Southeast. And then from there, went to Dias, stayed there longer than I anticipated. Short tour at Ellsworth, um, and then off to school, into Paycom, and then here. And that's 20 years. Yeah. Which, uh, do you feel like it went by quickly now in hindsight? Long days, yeah. <laughs> long days, you know that you throw yourself yeah, into no. it. Like you can't, you can't shortchange 20 years. Yeah. That's like my, that like, is my adult life. Yeah. When in Bender and I, we were, we were both Columbus guys and then we pretty much kind of just traveled around the world together. We both went to Phoenix for F-16s and then we went to uh, Masawa, Japan for our first assignments. But I don't know about you, Bender, but our first assignment in Masawa felt like a blink of an eye. Like in hindsight, I'm like, oh man, it was like no time at all. And uh, real time, it felt like it took forever. But in hindsight, it's like, holy cow, we were we got to Japan and then we left and somehow three years, you know, passed. Was it the same for you, Bender? Yeah, it feels like, well, it's just like little, small little lives. So Masala just feels like a distant memory. And then South Carolina feels the same way. So yeah, it feels like it went fast. But now that I, I have like five years left, I'm like, holy crap, can I churn this butter for five more years? Like, I'm not sure I can. <laughs> like, this is, this is going to take forever. Well, so, uh, all right, we're going to shift gears now. So obviously this is a, a defense innovation podcast. Uh, and then, um, so there's a lot of defense innovation going on from the private sector, from the military, from each branch in the military. Uh, and I believe, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but the uh, I think the Air Force is kind of, the biggest spender in these uh, innovation things, uh, but Agile Battle Lab. So, how did it get created, and then what is its what is its kind of charge, or what's its its vector to uh, do? Yeah. So, uh, history of the ABL dates back to essentially uh, New Year's Day of 2019, where it stood up as AETC Detachment 24 Squadron Nest, and the charge there was to design the cross-functional squadron of the future. And then go forth and conquer. And uh, and the team there built a cross-functional unit and uh, very quickly started to figure out some some stuff to innovate in and, and, and find new ways of, of fighting the war. Um, within a few months, they'd already put on a few exercises slash demos slash let's figure it out. Um, and that got briefed to Corona, like that summer, summer of 19, by General Quast to General Holton. Um Around that time, uh, I was also I was, I was a speechwriter to the commander of Indo-Pacific Command, so Admiral Davidson. I got a call one morning saying, hey, we got this job here. I think it's perfect for you. Uh, described, my buddy described it a little bit, and I was like, sounds cool, sounds high risk, medium reward. Uh, 
but after about a few, few extra phone calls, I was like, yeah, it's, it's time. Um, so that was summer of 19. Um, change of command at AETC. Um, new commander comes in and uh, says, you know, I was at Corona. John Goldfein said, awesome work with like the, the mesh networking radios, et cetera, but that sounded like an ACC job. So time to move this over to ACC. I land uh, from Hawaii and San Antonio about that time. Um, and a week later, we're on the road to an exercise with Northcom, um, with T6s. So around that, so AETC Detachment 24 in that summer fall also picked up the pilot training next mission. So from Detachment 21 at Austin. So now you've got a brand new unit with two very distinct missions. You know, evolve pilot training and evolve the way we fight the next war and, and OT&E for that, or organized training and equipped for that. Um, so that exercise in October of 19, we also had a lot of casual lieutenants waiting to go to, you know, power training next. We're also setting up, uh, sensor towers from Andorol, uh, running, essentially running an exercise at Fort Carson. Um, and it was awesome. Uh, out briefed to the Northcom commander in the middle of a snowstorm, you know, later that week, uh, on stuff. And in that time, uh, a lot of, you're, you're cleared hot to do whatever you want from AETC, as well as a lot of uh, fundings and, uh, and manpower, or say, say support from AFRL's SDPE organization. So I'm going to mess this up, but like strategic development, planning, execution, or something like that. Um, they do cool stuff. Uh, so I land, we do that, and I've got a, I'm the, what I was the director of operations for that side now of the detachment and told to move to ACC uh, right quick. So after that, we plan to get on a plane, go to ACC and like, like we're orphan kids asking to be hired because I've got to move an organization um, as directed by the chief of staff of the Air Force, but no one kind of knew that or had seen the direct orders, et cetera. So we go hat in hand talking about what we do uh, as we're getting ready for what became known as ABMS or the Advanced Battle Management System on ramp number one, which dates back to uh, the Starlink program and it was called Global Lightning or something. Anyway, AFRL, uh, some, some really smart uh, future thinking people understood what value Starlink was going to bring to the military. So before I joined the unit, uh, people in what was Squadron Next said, hey, can we Pile into that and do some stuff. And they said, yeah, sure, come on in. Uh, so as we were talking to Northcom about what we did, uh, that small experiment with us, AFRL, Starlink, and a few others became this much larger thing. And it blew up in about 30, maybe 60 days of notice um, for a lot of people just to come on in and, and bring what you can. Let's talk about cruise missile defense and everything else under the sun. Um, so we were kind of the seed corn for those on-ramps. Uh, we were the first unit to demonstrate the military utility of the Starlink system. Essentially, we had a, a mesh network of radios and soft on the ground. Uh, that network then connected to an AC-130 overhead that was connected to the Starlink uh, satellites, like the first, only, I don't know if it was 60 or, or 120 that were overhead at the time but the very early days of, of Starlink. 
and then we ran uh, essentially geographically separated targeting cells, um, you know, going up through Starlink and then come back down through uh, through the internet to, to validate that we we're doing something of utility with it and with uh, decent, you know, minimal latency, etc. Um, and that was that was ABMS on ramp one and. That succeeded because we had a first lieutenant communications officer that was well ahead of his time. Um, and he was kind of given to us as like a here, we don't need this guy, you guys can take him. Because he was working uh, like help desk type stuff. Um, but he had a cyber background, a comm background, and he is still one of the smartest engineers, programmers um, I've met in my three plus years now in this ecosystem. Uh, as a first lieutenant, just, just plugging away, um, and my job at that exercise was essentially to ensure his flow of monster energy drinks was, was you know, there because when we had to fix something in the middle of the night, he was the one doing it because I was not doing the ones and zeros. Um, but he understood all the systems better than everyone else combined. He made that work. Um, got a coin from uh, General O'Shaughnessy at the end of it, and, and that was awesome. So as we're trying to work, Transition to ACC. The original plan was, hey, this attachment just does innovation and all that kind of stuff. Um, don't get bogged down with the queep. In reality, it's we have to get we had to get double down on the queep because everything we were doing, we were smaller. We didn't have a process. No one else had a process for it, so we had to learn every AFI, every reg, moving billets, moving bodies, paperwork. What codes this? Like when I joined, some we're talking about B1 guy. When I joined Squadron Next, I was in an evaluator East MC130 position. Like that's just that's what they had. So that's what you like. That's and that's how we rolled for like the entire time um, in terms of administrative type stuff. Um, as we moved to ACC, ACC said, "Hey, we like what you're doing." Uh, or the visionaries within ACC that, that hired us. We like what we're doing, but we need help with ACE. You know, well, we were kind of doing this for ACE anyway. I personally uh, had a background in ACE before it was called ACE, dating back to my time in the B1. Um, so that was that was easy. So new mission, uh, new brand, and, uh, and we kept on uh, keeping on. Getting ready for ABMS on ramp two. Uh, COVID hits, that gets rolled a few months, but we still execute. and. At ABMS on ramp two, uh, if you see pictures of robot dogs, dudes in VR gear, uh, the LC 130s, all that stuff, uh, Agile Battle Lab, running an ACE airfield with HIMARS, um, contingency response professionals, uh, and then we even had, uh, you know, ground launch cruise missile targeting type stuff uh, on, on some C2 software that we're using. Uh, so it was, it was awesome. Then, Soon after that, we go to our first Agile flag. So ACC developed exercise for Agile combat employment. And doing all the ABMS on-ramps, we thought, hey, we're going to bring in a lot of cool tech. It's going to be awesome. Um, and we go to ad the first Agile flag, and there was just there's a lot of problems. And uh, we realized that we can't just bring the tech in. There's a whole lot of change that has to happen across the Air Force. Um, I'm not going to get into the details, but essentially we hadn't trained anyone for ACE or even kind of defined what it is for them or how to do it. So there's a lot of awesome airmen 
from the wing commander on down a mountain home, trying to figure it out, you know, their first time on their own type of stuff. Um, and definitely, instead of just bringing cool tech in, uh, started partnering with the wings. Like, hey, we saw these problems. Do you agree the problems? Now let's try and figure it out. Um, the best analogy I could come up with when I explained it was the IG comes in and identifies, you know, weaknesses and flaws. We did the same thing, but we didn't grade you. Our job is to fix it. And we quickly realized that if I saw a flaw in your wing or your organization, it wasn't because you aren't good. It was because you and your counterparts aren't good at something you've never been trained to do. So it was a, you know, structural across the Air Force type problems. Um, so that's what we started to solve. And we built it not just for the wing we were partnering with, but, you know, everyone else was going to affect. Uh, at that point in time, I stopped flying too, because I was supposed to be doing, you know, pilot training next and and this uh, Agile Battle admission. So I just took myself off the schedule uh, for six months, but in reality, I, I never looked back. Uh, so I got flown, sent that last student ride that I flew before the first Agile flight. Um, around that time, we changed our mission statement to accelerate technology, tactics, and unit design to realize ACE alongside ACC units. Um, and when it comes to innovation, you can't just change one of those things. You're, 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 you're hitting all those, those levers, you know, uh, it's kind of like, you know, moving the throttles, you know, in your formation, it has a couple of downstream effects. So if you want to bring new tech in, cool, new tactics to employ it, new unit design, new training, new whatever else. Um, same thing, if you want to change your tactics or your unit design, you probably need some new tech to enable that. Um, the one thing we did not advertise was uh, policy. A lot of stuff requires policy changes, and we just weren't going to pretend that we could influence that significantly. Um, so that was, I guess, fall of 2020. Um, and for the next you know, few months on the road, a lot of wing exercises, trying to come up with solutions, fielding solutions. We wanted to field a solution, you know, multiple solutions within 12 months. And that was our time frame. And we quickly realized that you can put something cool in the hands of an airman and an exercise, uh, but their desire to fully embrace that new technology or new tactic without the appropriate training, without the appropriate buy-in from everyone, without acknowledging that even if something isn't 100% ready, it's okay and something could fail, um, that just wasn't going to fly. So you can't just drop new stuff in and say, hey, look, I got a 70% solution for you. It's awesome. Um, so we then began to put on our own events called on-ramps. It was partly at the direction of our leadership in ACC. So this is kind of our, our second major pivot which is not only are we going to come up with solutions, but we now have to build an exercise where failure is allowed, where units are allowed to execute the thing that the exercise is focused on without doing all the other stuff. Um, you know, when you build, you know, objectives for your own wing exercise or whatever, a security forces has to have their play. You have to get the right escort or the right, you know, bomb dropping objectives. You got to make all those, you got to add all those ingredients in before you know what you're making. Whereas we were going to build a tailored event specifically for the, the thing we were making. And if I didn't get certain ingredients in, like, don't care. Because we want to focus on that. And we wanted the wing, from the wing commander down to the airman, 
to tell our leadership what worked and didn't work. So it wasn't us saying, hey, here's this piece of knowledge. It was new tactic. You've got to buy it and do it. It's here's what we think. We're going to train the airmen upon how to use it, do it, etc. And then I'll let them tell, you know, Comac or, or whatever senior civilian is there what they think of it. Um, so it's not just our PowerPoint arguing with someone else's PowerPoint. It's, it's a true solution that we've proved out in the field. And I say proved out like we experimented with stuff. We ran at a speed that we knew we could not ensure success. We were hoping for 75% success if we were lucky, um, not knowing what was going to succeed or fail. Some stuff, as expected, succeeded quite well. Some stuff we thought was going to be awesome, and it wasn't. Um, and then some stuff we thought wasn't that important became um, the bee's knees. Uh, so that first on-ramp in December of 2021, so a little over a year now ago, um, we had a lot of collaboration with the chief architect's office because we were focusing on communications and command control stuff called the C3 Office Rehearsal. Uh, it was essentially, it's not what we wanted to do, but it was like the number one problem of multiple wing commanders. So, you know, our, our model was to solve the user's problems. Whether it's the wing commander or the Indo-Paycom commander, we are going to solve that problem. Um, so they said they had a comm problem, a C2 problem, so we got to go solve that. Um, even though we had lost our comm officer, you know, long before. Uh, so close integration with the chief architect's office, uh, industry, uh, in this case, the 23rd wing, um, and other wings to test out and experiment with stuff. Um, and it worked fantastically. Like the, the wing was blown away by how uh, awesome some of the technology was. Some of it we stole from the Marines because, you know, why reinvent the wheel? We, we found something that worked. Uh, some of it was like there's one uh, piece of equipment I'll, I'll, I'll acknowledge uh, called the FAC or Flyaway Com Terminal. That's what we called it eventually. Uh, when it was first proposed to us by uh, Commander Shaw, I didn't think it was really that important or worth pursuing. But once again, our job was to you know, solve the problems of customers. So we did some some homework. My superintendent did. Um, and he quickly put together, you know, with industry, these, you know, just a, the minimum amount of stuff you need to deploy and communicate. Um, and that's, it's, it's taken off like gangbusters. Um, and when we fast forward now to that, that event with, with General Kelly, uh, the ACC commander, uh, Mr. Preston Dunlop, the, uh, the chief architect of the Air Force and, and others, um, we got a lot of stuff in front of them with the airmen saying what worked, what didn't work, how useful it was. And a lot of that stuff, uh, made it into the POM for funding. So that's like our, our budgeting process in the Air Force. So, so for large scale acquisition, um, so sorry, one of, one of the questions I had, not to yeah. derail. Um, yeah. So how do you move from AETC to ACC and have any sort of funding? Because it seems like a lot of that is difficult to have. And then two, what is the structure that currently exists that doesn't really allow for people to innovate that way? Is it because we have very scripted, very deliberate exercises? Uh, so you asked a few questions there. Um, how do you change commands? You have to enjoy inflicting pain upon yourself. Um, <laughs> it was not something I'd want to do again. And I, I'm fine with inflicting pain on myself. That was far too much pain was required. Um, we actually got shut down a few times because the process was so slow. Um, my DO at the time, fantastic officer, uh, eventually 
was the DG, uh, pardon me, the semester graduate of ACSC. Uh, one of the times when, they, when we were shut down, he was told to run the casual lieutenant program. So it was not just shut down, but it was like, we're shutting you down and we're punishing you for, for trying something. Um, for the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile, and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time, there's Granger, offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. As we moved over, our leadership in ACCA3 um, essentially gave us a free checkbook to go TDY and to find solutions. And we depend upon a lot of at fork sibbers to fund stuff. Um, we got some funding through ACC for our projects, uh, but minor in comparison to, I don't know, your flying hour program uh, that ACC A3 is also in charge of. Um, and we tried real hard to only bring solutions that we knew had a high probability of success. So we weren't just out you know, writing checks for whatever we could. We put a lot of effort into anything we asked money for. And um, essentially, we were never told no, but it was because we were we were doing, being so diligent. And we were always trying to provide value to the customer, to the wing commander, to the user, to someone at half or end of the take on who said, yes, this is scratching all of which. Um, so we weren't working for us. It was never about the ADL. The Agile Battle Lab is not going to war. But we wanted to make sure that people who went to war uh, had what they needed. Um, whether it was education, you know, educating, I remember educating wing commanders on the, the O plans so, so he or she would understand the risk to their forces to understand why they should be focusing so much on ACE or, or why they should uh, focus on very specific solutions. Not everything was a technical solution. Sometimes it was your logistics officers need to do X, your CE officers need to do Y. Um, that require additional tech, it just requires you know, new focus. Um, I think had we had different leadership in ACC A3, we would have had a much different um, probability of success. So, so hats off to, uh, to Mr. Uchida and the team and the A35 team and, and ACC A3. Got nothing but good words for them. And these these solutions that you're finding at each of these bases, I assume a lot of this stuff is is common across bases because a lot of times bases have the same discrepancies or deficiencies. Uh, or was that so? Are these same solutions? same problems? Same problems, yes. Okay. Uh, and the solutions we try to build. Um, now keep in mind, we are not building a specific widget for your aircraft, which would not work on someone else's aircraft. We would we spent a lot of time trying to work with AFMC and AFWorks to. Uh, build an ecosystem where we could build solutions that worked across multiple airframes, but uh, the ability to communicate, let's say, um, that need exists across all the units. Then we built a solution that worked for all of them. And no kidding, we went out to Davis Monthan to make sure it worked in the A10 unit, went to Hill, make sure it worked with F35s, worked with Shaw, make sure it worked with, with uh, F16 units, you know, fulfilled their needs of, of their units and stuff like that. Um, while figuring out all the other ins and outs type of stuff from contracting and 
every, like I said, every other administrative piece you think you need, we had to do that as well. Um, authorities to operate and everything else. Yeah. How much, how much, uh, pushback, not, pu- not pushback, but how much, I can't think of a nice way to say it. Yep. Uh, uh, what I call staff 101 is not my job. And yeah. you can get real far with staff 101. You don't want to say not my job, but there's a lot of people who are, you know, really good at making you think it's not their job. Um, staff 201 is what I call ghosting, where people just hope you ignore them after a while and you lose track of it. Um, we ran with our uh, hair on fire all the time, so it was easy to uh, to run into that. There is, now this is a problem with, uh, with our bureaucracy in the Air Force, and primarily on the, the headquarters staffs, I say staffs plural, it's across the board. Um, we are very much organized to support our rice bowls, whether it's your career field, your MBS, your job jar, whatever else. And so many of our problems cross those slow cups. Um, so when you ask about people that say no or whatever else, we either had to build a coalition of the willing, which was find that one person in that division or career field that would, you know, run alongside you and, you know, take flack. Uh, whether it was a sergeant or a colonel. Because um, even, you know, colonels couldn't just direct their whole career field to change, you know, direction type of stuff. Um, and then we had to continue showing the utility of that with the unit. Uh, like I said, our PowerPoints were never going to compete with someone else's PowerPoints. Um, we just didn't have the mass to overpower someone else's noise and legacy, division, career field, whatever else. Uh, so we had to show utility in the field. Uh, I started a sprint late last spring, uh, finished off by my replacement, focused on force protection. We did a force protection officer, so focused on primarily camouflage, concealment, and deception. Things talked about a lot, um, but we actually did it, focused on it. Some stuff succeeded, did great. Some stuff didn't work out as well as we had hoped. Um, but we were running with our hair on fire trying to get stuff done because that's the pace you need to move at to move at the speed of relevancy. Um, if you're waiting to be successful, you're, you're way too slow uh, for the, the size of the threat and the, the pace of change that, that we need. Um, and then we always had to get it in front of leadership. You know, a leader seeing something up in, it, in his or her face um, and, understand, you know, and, and understanding that this solves a problem that they intimately are familiar with is so much better than PowerPoint, you know, Project X competing against PowerPoint Project Y. Because everyone probably knows what PowerPoint Project Y is. We've been doing it for 40 years, and we just need, you know, more of the same. Um, so if you want to do something different, you've got to prove it out in real life. And that's what we and Bender, try to you can, do. Yeah, Bender, you can get the next one. I've been stealing all the questions. But uh, so if a base, so somebody, a military member, who's listening to this or someone who hasn't participated in agile battle lab, like how do they get into this and start getting to participate in these things if they want their base to do it? So we execute a lot of outreach. Like I said, I would educate wing commanders down to, down to, you know, airmen and stuff like that. Um, so we're connected with a lot of the ACC bases, a few of the AMC bases, as well as a few in PACF and USAFE, but 
the actual battle lab is pretty small. So if you want to, and now I'm no longer part of the ABL, so I can't speak for them. But uh, when I was in charge, if you wanted to be a part of it, um, you had to keep working with us. As soon as you know, cooperation went cold from someone else, we just didn't have the human bandwidth to keep pushing for something. Um, so if you reached out once or twice, we, we responded and, and this or that, like, and that's all. It's not because we didn't like it. It's because we had a lot of pressing needs. Um, you know, two OSS commanders in a row at Hill, you know, reached out to us for help. The first time we couldn't really help out because the, the larger um, demand signal was coming from the lead wings for the, the lead wing, you know, ace, agile flag type stuff. Um, but by the time the second guy reached out, um, we, we had something we could work with him on. Um, and it was just you know, close uh, collaboration uh, throughout. And it wasn't, a lot of it was, I would say, interpersonal, just working with each other. Working with each other. Uh, can't assume that cold emails are going to, you know, generate uh, a giant lottery of wins. Um, but a lot of just working together, putting effort and stuff. In fact, when we start working with a wing on a project, we can't hit the wing commander up for everything. So when we agreed, when we agreed to work on, you know, project X, it's, Hey, I need a POC that I can reach out to whenever I need something so that they're, they're running this on their end as well. Um, and we're connected to a lot of the, you know, the, the MAGCOM efforts as well as half from headquarters, air force efforts. So we're not just working with the wings. We're trying to tie stuff from the, the Smallest tactical level up to the operational and strategic level, you know, and, and have that that line of continuity throughout, so everyone understands what we're doing. We're very open kimono about what we're doing. I mean, we're so small and uh, cross-functional that as soon as you hide something, it was going we're all going to find it. So we almost had to advertise that we we're going to ruffle feathers um, as much as we could, so that no one was surprised by what we were doing. Um, and we're usually moving much faster than anyone else could keep up with anyway, especially just random stuff like, you know, uh, requests for frequency authorization. You know, we were planning exercises inside of that timeline, which is usually unheard of, but that's just the timeline we had to move in. So. When I think, I think a lot of things happen shockingly slow in the DOD. I think a lot of people expect stuff to happen faster and then it's it's weeks and it's months and you know like there's I mean I've been a part of multiple conversations where it's like cool we're ready to move forward and it's like cool well yeah we'll talk in uh, seven weeks and you're like what like can we talk tomorrow you know but so it's uh it's a little crazy there sometimes Bender you got anything I don't want to keep stealing all the questions no well I'm going through the process right now so I having met Adam I got in contact with the ABL for an upcoming exercise that we're doing out to Indo-PACOM. So they're actually working with us uh, a little bit right now. So they've been awesome as far as trying to support, again, for a reserve wing, which we are, you know, we, we do stuff 20 years behind what the active duty, as far as like the mindset, like we're back in like 1985, like we haven't even been to the desert storm yet uh, in a lot of ways. Um, so being able to work with that organization that hopefully we, you know, they're going to come out and brief and stuff to like, try to like, Hey, like this is a new fight. Like you have to understand that things are going to work differently. Um, so I'm excited to kind of see how that goes, but that's, that's kind of the phase that we're in right now. Um, 
I wanted to ask, so how big, uh, I've only emailed three different people with ABL right now. So I know that there's at least three people that work there. Uh, <laughs> how big is that? And then how, how do people, how are you getting your manning there? So for our duration, we uh, average out at seven people. You know, think about what you can do with seven people. Um, so we, in my change of command, I said, and I stand by the fact that pound for pound, we were the most effective organization in the Air Force. Um, no one did more with less. Um, one, one senior executive said, you know, we did more for the Air Force on a starving artist budget than some organizations, you know, have all the money in the world and, and they're barely showing any kind of progress. Um, and that meant a lot. Um, yeah, so we had seven. We uh, have been working really hard to try and get billets for military people. We've had far more people interested in working for us and with us than we've actually been able to hire. Um, you know, everyone holds on to their billets like their their gold, even empty billets, because if they're manned at eighty percent, and you ask for an empty billet, well, now they're manned at ninety percent, and that looks worse for them. So they want to hold on to their empty billets that is never going to get filled because it makes it look like they're worse on mine. Um, but our leadership did approve uh, essentially eight civilian hires. We've been going through the process for know, it seems like over a year, um, just because building a civilian position uh, it's a lot of work, you know. And and we're not going to the agile battle lab did not think that it was going to innovate the personnel system. Um, so some of those civilian hire positions uh, are open. Uh, for hire, I'm not tracking the current state of, of which ones, um, but we were looking for, you know, very, very much a cross-functional team. Um, I was the only pilot in the unit, and while I wanted to hire one or two other pilots, it wasn't because they were pilots, it was because they brought something else to the table. Um, no one got really hard to get a pilot bill anywhere. Uh, but like my number one billet to hire, my entire time in command was some of the contracting or acquisitions experience. That was more important than anything else. Um, because that's so such a complicated bureaucratic process that we just need an expert to do that. With the that's uh, cool. oh, one more ahead. Vader, sorry. Yeah. Uh, so when you talk about technologies that you guys are pulling in, I assume that the ABL, you know, like if people are because again we talked to a lot of companies that there's my kids you can hear in the background. Um, a lot of companies that are submitting cyber you know, um, applications or whatever. And some organizations have more clout with AFWorks. Like, so I imagine ABL, like if ABL is like, Hey, we want this, like that probably, you know, that's better than like some whatever captain in some squadron who's like, Hey, this is a cool program. Like, could we submit a request? So I guess what I'm getting at is how does you guys don't have a lot of bandwidth, like you're saying. So how are people approaching you to be like, Hey, ABL, like we got this product. We think it'd be great for, XYZ problems, or you like it? Maybe lost him. Um, can you still hear me, Vader? Hear me, Vader? Yeah, I got you. Okay, so I'll keep yeah, it happens all the time. Uh, we yeah. did not throw our weight around AppWorks, but we did collaborate with AppWorks um, essentially our entire time in, uh, in existence. Uh, it, it ebbed and flowed due to human bandwidth, not anything else. Uh, AppWorks is doing an amazing job, uh, and, I, and I, I'm so glad we were able to work with them um, and they're growing into an even you know, better organization day by day. Uh, so they're going to be, you know, if the Air Force changes, it's going to be because of AppWorks. Um, we didn't throw our weight around. Uh, there were cybers that we got. There were cybers we didn't get. 
and we just always try to continue working with them to find a solution, solutions that you know work for the whole Air Force, and it wasn't just because the AVO wanted something. We always tried to you know draw that line back to this is going to scale across the across the Air Force. Um, so from the Air Force director on down, uh, yeah. In terms of working with companies, some companies reached out to us, some we, we reached out to. Uh, you know, reading all the, the submissions, seeing what looked cool. Uh, sometimes people follow us, and sometimes their stuff looks cool. Sometimes it's compelling, and sometimes we're like, you know, you, you say a lot, but let's put it to the field and let's see. And it works or it doesn't. Um, and either way, there's learning that occurs because there's no way that you know your good idea fairy for tech is completely ready for the field. You know, on day one, so we routinely took stuff out to the field. Knowing it wouldn't be ready, but knowing that it was not going to be, you know, like a single date. It was going to be one of multiple. Pick it out, see it works, see if it didn't work, get feedback from the airmen, go back, fix it. Um, and some of our, I would say our, some of our best successes are because of that. When you're, when you're doing these uh, agile battle labs and you're going, you know, originally going to bases and kind of testing them out and now kind of creating your own exercises, if you were going to give a grade across all of the aspects of the military. So like high marks in some areas, you know, like miserable marks in others. Where would you say the Air Force struggles and needs to focus more? And where would you say they they are ahead or achieving? Uh, I would say, like you said, all services are excelling in certain areas and failing in certain areas. Um, and I, I routinely have conversations with people on their services. Oh, we're, we're, kicking, we're kicking butt here or we suck here. No, we suck here. Um, and it, it is what it is. Um, areas in which we're not doing well. So, you know, General Brown said, you know, he, he graded himself a C, you know, for accelerate change of rules. Um, so his, his words, not mine. Um, we are not evolving our force structure for the next fight. We are trying to take a force structure that was not designed for this fight and use it for the next fight. Uh, you can only turn an NFL lineman into a prima ballerina so much. You know, it, Refrigerator Perry is not gonna, you know, dance at whatever famous ballet there is. Like it's just, it's just not gonna happen. Um, and so much of our Air Force was designed to be that Refrigerator Perry uh, because we had an old operational concept. ACE and our new operational concepts change everything. So if your MDS, your support equipment, your career field was essentially designed 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 years ago, guess what? It probably needs some change. Um, where we are excelling, uh, I would say I've been privileged to work with some absolutely amazing squadron group and wing commanders across the CAF and the MAF that understand the problems that they're facing and they're willing just to go do it. Um, and they've got a lot more on their plates than I ever did. So I love briefing a room full of commanders saying, here's what you should be doing and you're not. And then acknowledging that I don't have a flying program, I don't have a sapper program, I don't have all these other things. I'm not upgrading anybody. Um, so it's easy for me to throw spears at units that aren't doing stuff, but they've got a lot of other stuff on their plate. Um, so I would say our commanders 
today, um, I rarely, rarely walked away from the game of Commander thinking that he or she didn't get it. Um, and it's tough to see in some of the Air Force news releases, but there's some, there are some commanders out there that are pushing their units to the brink of failure, not because they're trying to break them, but because they're trying to make them succeed in combat. Um, and that is where I would say the Air Force is succeeding. Well, awesome. Well, that's good to know because I think, I mean, I, I know I've heard it somewhere. I don't remember where, but they say, you know, people are our most valuable asset, you know, and so having end yeah. user operators, but also commanders doing that. Um, America did not lead the bombing of Japan in 1942. Jimmy Doolittle did. You know, uh, a team of engineers did not put 50 caliber guns on B-25s. Lieutenant General Kenny did. Uh, a coalition of the willing did not, you know, run, plan, and lead Operation Bolo. You know, Robin Olds and his weapons officer did. So uh, if you want to, and here's where I think the Air Force is having a challenge. We are not finding those people, empowering them, resourcing them, and retaining them. In, there are leaders in the officer and the senior enlisted ranks who can win us the next war. You give them a sport and they'll be the Chinese. I've, I've met them. They can do it. Um, but they're not empowered, uh, resourced, and retained to do so. And that is that's something we are having a huge problem with. And it's, it's really rough to watch. Yeah. And it's unfortunate because... The one thing that I think, speaking as a guy who just joined the Air National Guard, is that, you know, the Air Force feels like they're losing people because they're going to the Guard or the Reserves. But but hopefully we should also understand that they're they're still there. They're still, you know, going to be in meetings. They're still going to be a part of the fight, just in a different capacity. So hopefully if those people aren't on the active duty side still, maybe they can participate or, or provide their inputs from, from the other side. But hopefully... So yeah, there were some people in Fresno that did some awesome stuff for ACE. Um, the Michigan Guard is absolutely killing it. Um, they are singularly, singularly focused on figuring out how to how to fight, win the next fight. Uh, yeah, I think I think one aspect of the Air National Guard specifically is that they don't they don't leave. You know, then like you said, you know, you spend eighteen months, two years, two plus years working on something, but then you end up going on to do something else where the Air National Guard, people are there for 10, 12, 15, 20 years uh, learning these things. So I know we got we to gotta get rolling real quick. So uh, Adam, thank you very much for being here. And uh, if you're cool with it, we'll have people reach out on uh, LinkedIn and uh, contact yeah. you if they, whether they want to learn more about Agile Battle Labs or just uh, pick your brain on the experiences you've had. Uh, yeah. So thank you very much. Thank you. This went by way too quickly. I feel like we've got about two or three more hours of the content. <laughs> well, we, we'd be happy to have you back because we have plenty more questions uh, yeah. on all of it. But, uh, but yeah, thank you. Bender, you got any uh, parting shots before we go? No, we'll have you back because we got there are a lot of fighter pilots that listen to this who have. Anyway, that's the frustration. They know that's the stuff that they need and there's just no yeah. way to yeah. get it. And so they would love to pick your brain and kind of see, it. like, how do we get around yeah. yeah. The, and I uh, think walls. Uh, as Adam said earlier, like don't take no for an answer. 
you know, the, uh, well, slander said it a while ago too. Like, don't let someone who can't tell you yes, tell you no, uh, because I think that happens way too much. If you don't have to, don't ask for, for permission. Just do it. Um, they're not really going to fire you. How many people do you know have gone to jail or have gotten fired or whatever else? Um, I mean, yeah. there's, you can, you can continue to be a yes man and get promoted and wait to take a lot of missiles in the face if we, if we go to war. Like, I, I am not difficult and I don't cause, I don't ruffle feathers in the Air Force because I just like to be a jerk. It's because I truly think we're here for a reason and it's not for CVTs on Tuesdays. It's to go to war and this next one, it's going to be ugly. So let's, let's get it done while we can. I think some people forget that sometimes. I think we, it's been so long that I think people forget that that is the end state reality and yeah. uh, makes me nervous. But all right, thanks again, Adam. And uh, admin, uh, please give us five stars. Give us ratings. Reach out at info at KodiakShack.com. Check out our website, KodiakShack.com. And, uh, and on YouTube, LinkedIn, all those places. Instagram, we're all over the place. Same name uh, everywhere. And uh, let us know what you want to hear about. Let us know if you want to hear more from, uh, from Adam Chitlin. Thanks again. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, click Grainger.com, or just stop by. Granger, For the ones who get it done.